Hello and welcome to The Aid Station. I'm Chris Robb and I'm hugely excited about today's show. Some of you would have seen a few weeks ago when I interviewed marathon legend Rob DiCostella, the founder of the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. Today we're hugely honored to meet Nat Heath, who is one of the graduates of that program. Nat, currently in Sydney, is originally from, uh, grew up in Waramai country and uh, really excited to hear his story. Hi, Nat. Great to see you. Yeah, g'day, Chris. Thanks for having us. Um, just like before we start to acknowledge that I'm, uh, as you said, I'm in Sydney, so I'm in uh, Bidjigal country here. Wonderful. So, so great that you could make the time. And I know today's a busy day for you, so uh, re really excited to have the opportunity to chat to you. And I'd love to start by telling, getting you to tell us a little bit of your background, please, Nat. Yeah, so look, firstly, I'm a, a proud Aboriginal man. Um, my people are the Menang people of the Noongar Nation and also Mudajara people. So they're from Western Australia. Um, so Noongar Nation, sort of the southwest part of WA and Mudajara's Western Desert. Um, I was born in Sydney and grew up in Foster, which is Waramai country. I went to school there and um, yeah, I was really fortunate, I had a great upbringing growing up in Foster, which is a beautiful country, and eventually moved down to Newcastle, where I studied at uh, Wallatooka, which is a part of the Newcastle University, and I've always been working in Aboriginal education since 2005, so currently in uh, Sydney, as you said, and I'm uh, working as the manager for the Department of Education um, in early childhood. Fantastic. We were talking about that before. You know, I mean, what an amazing impact you're able to make in, in those communities and, and the programs in terms of educating young Aboriginals. It sounds absolutely amazing from a satisfaction perspective. I'd, I'd love you to talk a little bit more about, you know, current situation, what's happened with COVID, what, what are the kind of things that you've been doing uh, over the last few months and at the moment, please, Nat. Yeah, so look, work-wise, um, it's been interesting because um, education, well, the Department of Education, I think probably across um, not only Australia, but the world has probably had to quickly speed up in the way that they operate and actually deliver education. Um, so for us, I work in the sort of zero to five area, which is mainly with community preschools and long daycare services, which are all autonomous organisations within our state. So part of what we've had to do because of the, the impact of COVID and services having to um, close for a period of time, we were looking around how we can support services, um, I guess, to still deliver an educational program, even though the kids aren't face-to-face. -face. So putting up different uh, practices, different approaches to the way that you know, children can still be educated at home. So providing educational resources, so the services would provide educational resources to families so then they could potentially deliver it. They might also put up Facebook, using their Facebook and social media channels to actually put up live videos. So a part of what we were doing, I guess, was um, supporting services in that actual delivery. And for us, we primarily, um, our role is to work and focus on supporting Aboriginal children. So looking at what are the best practice approaches to support Aboriginal children during that situation. So it's been interesting, particularly for a lot of Aboriginal preschools, they're based within the Aboriginal community. So a lot of services due to the risk of COVID did shut their um, doors earlier. Um, so we were, I guess, a part of our role was to support those services to make sure, you know, they went through the right processes in closing their doors and then were able to still deliver an educational program to those children and, you know, continue their engagement with families. Fantastic. And, and I guess, you know, in that process, there would have been a few challenges that you would have overcome. What, what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome there, apart from communities being kind of shut down? 
Um, I think the big one was just doing things in a, a different way. And even for us as a department, like we probably weren't set up um, to deal with this situation with, you know, particular for early education, we we're lucky. I think for the school space, they probably realised they've been, I guess, providing education in, in a, a format that's been the same since the 1900s and had to work out, you know, different approaches to delivering education and actually using um, things such as, you know, iPhones, computers and using those platforms, which uh, I think it's really positive because it's actually going to help us actually move into the future of the way things are delivered. For us as a, a team um, working in education, we're all working from home now. So the face-to-face the -face contact, which particularly for me as an individual, I, I prefer. Um, I'm more of a discuss and let's work through different ways we, we can deal with things. A lot of that then started going into email format, obviously Zoom meetings. Um, so everything became online. So that's been, I guess, a new challenge, but also it's probably showed that it can actually be done effectively. Um, for someone like myself, who's a bit extroverted, it was a bit of a challenge in trying to deal with that. I think it's actually, but for people on the other spectrum who are introverted, it's actually been a really good opportunity for them to um, showcase their talents that sometimes that might not get sort of seen if you're in a sort of face-to-face -face style um, get together. So look, that stuff's been uh, good. As far as personal stuff, my old man, I was a little bit unwell during the COVID um, situation, which was non-COVID related. So um, I, had, I was back up at home. Uh, Foster, he was in Tari Hospital at the time. So in a way, the COVID situation happening was actually when dad was unwell, I was fortunate in that all work was from home. So I could actually work up there. Whereas if it was during just a regular time, I probably would have had to take up to six weeks off, which would have been a bit of a challenge. So, um, so from work respects, it's been, it's been kind of cool and exciting to try a different approach to our work. Uh, and it's also given us, I guess, a platform we've, we've had new executive directors come in. So we're really pushing to obviously bring Aboriginal education up within New South Wales. There's a new close the gap refresh coming through with new targets, particularly around developmental outcomes for Aboriginal children and participation. So sort of providing renewed energy to try to really drive and push change and particularly work with Aboriginal community and give them a voice, which is the big thing that um, I want to see, particularly for our government to start doing, have Aboriginal voices drive policy and design. And, uh, one of the things I really support, my partners are big, um, been heavily involved with the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is around uh, enshrining a, in, within the Constitution of Australia a voice for Aboriginal people to be the lead agencies of, um, you know, around policies and um, programs that actually impact Aboriginal people. Fantastic. And obviously long, long overdue in that situation. That's great to hear of the, the progress being made in that space. I mean, moving on to another aspect of challenge, obviously you graduate of the Indigenous Marathon Foundation um, and part of that challenge is, is running a marathon and, and, and yours, as I understand it, turned out to be even more of a challenge than you expected because it was the year of the hurricane in New York and you missed out and you've gone on to, to run, as I understand it, three marathons. I'd love to hear your, your story a little bit around, you know, joining the foundation and, and, and the challenge that you were able to overcome there. Yeah, so that was interesting. That was the first time in uh, New York Marathon history that um, the race had been cancelled because of Hurricane Sandy. And I think the announcement just came out the other day that it's it's been cancelled again due to the, the COVID. So um, um, that's really unfortunate, obviously, for the event managers and everyone that was looking forward to doing it. But um, 
to me, yeah, I was really fortunate, obviously, to be selected in the Indigenous Marathon Project in 2012. Um, for me, I, I found it, it was something that I really needed at the time. I was kind of, I was just starting to get into endurance sport, but I was working a job. I wasn't super happy and I kind of felt like I was just, in a way, floating through life um, and didn't really have any huge goals or aspirations. Um, and the Indigenous Marathon Project kind of gave me this renewed sort of vigour and opportunity to have something that I could really push myself and challenge myself with. And for me, like I'd never represented at a state level um, in any sport or in a, like a national level. So to be part of the Indigenous Marathon Project, I really felt like oh, it gave me an opportunity to not only represent myself, my family, um, the community I was living in Newcastle at the time, but I felt like I was representing sort of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people across the country and to really, I guess, push myself to represent them at the highest level that was possible for me. So when I got selected in the Marathon Project, although New York Marathon's a goal, that wasn't like what it was about for me. I wasn't like, oh, I get to go to New York. That was just kind of like a bonus aspect of it. Like I would have been happy to run a marathon anywhere um, and Rob always sort of talks about, you know, the finish line of the marathon's really just the start of your journey. It's not the end of your journey. So for me, um, it was a great opportunity to really, I guess, start to enjoy and embrace running um, and also to, I guess, push myself in ways that I didn't know possible. And when I, I guess, completed the marathon, I ended up doing the marathon in Tokyo in 2013 after New York was cancelled. Um, and I guess from that point, it kind of made me realise, you know, what I was, I could do if I put my mind to it and actually worked hard. And one of the things when I did get picked in the marathon project, my, one of my goals was to actually, I guess, break sub three, sub three hours for the marathon. Um, and when I did Tokyo, I, I didn't achieve that. I did a three hours 13. And I guess what that kind of taught me is sometimes even when you work hard, it's not necessarily the outcome what you want isn't always there um, in the way that you kind of had pictured it. So I guess it, instead of like, you know, giving up or like, I can't do that. It also made me realize, okay, well that's, you thought you were there, but there's actually layers and levels to this. Mm -hmm. And it sort of helped me focus to go, well, I need to keep improving to get to that sort of marker. And in 2014, I ended up um, doing the Sydney marathon and I did two hours 52. So uh -huh. in a way, the indigenous marathon project kind of also taught us that, you know, things just because you want something, it's not necessarily given, you've got to work hard for, and you may not necessarily get it first go, but if you keep working hard um, and the good thing about, you know, the, the thing about running and even triathlon is it's something that you have to do. It's not going to be, you can't rely on a teammate to drag you to these good results. So the onus is on you to work hard to get the result that you want. Um, and as you said, I think since then I've done, I think I've done four marathons now. Three of them have been sub three, six Ironman triathlons and a couple of ultras in. And in July 12th, so in two weeks, I'm actually going to be doing a 100-kilometer run up in Newcastle to celebrate the Indigenous Marathon Project's virtual running festival, also to celebrate NADOC week. And it's also Indigenous Marathon Foundation's 10th year. So I thought, why not run 10Ks for every year that IMF's going, um, do a 100-kilometre run, get everyone um, involved to celebrate that, plus NADOC week, and raise some money as well. So I have a goal of raising $10,000, and we're up to about $9,800 now. 
Fantastic. That's great. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, Rob. Share that. That's, uh, that's fantastic. And, you know, going back to New York, uh, Rob shared that, you know, one of the things you did, it, you didn't kind of like sit around saying we've missed the marathon. You, you, and, you and the group went into to one, of the, one of the suburbs and spent a whole bunch of time helping people clean up and getting involved in the community. I'd love you to share a little bit about that. Yeah, so obviously once the news come through that the marathon wasn't happening, it's kind of like, well, what do you do next? And I at the time thought it was the right decision, obviously, for the marathon to be cancelled. And so we decided that, you know, instead of the day that we would run the marathon, we would actually go out and work with the community where it was needed to try to help with the cleanup. So um my memory is sort of slightly vague. I remember we went to one spot and like they obviously had a lot of helpers and like there's not much need for you here, but they suggested we go to another community, which was Red Hook, um, which I'm not sure exactly where it is in New York. I'm not very good with the geography of New York, but we went out there and so we just essentially helped. We went to one of the, um, I guess in Australia, you call it Housing Commission. I'm not sure, I uh, forget the, um, like one of the projects um, units there. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of sort of flooding and mud had been gone into particularly the basements of a lot of these joints. So we just went in and said, how can we help? And we just were, I, the one thing I really remember doing is just shoveling lots of mud out of the bottom of these basements. So wow. um, the morning of, we went for a jog, we headed out and we tried to do our bit for the people that, you know, obviously were going through a tough time. And I mean, the thing that we kind of did was like, minuscule to obviously the whole cleanup but i think what it showed uh, um i guess for the party indigenous marathon project it changed the fabric of the way that the foundation's about it's not necessarily about you know you getting this great opportunity to go to new york it's about what are you actually going to contribute to the greater society and community and for us particularly aboriginal communities um but in that instance we we're like well we're here let's this is a good opportunity to represent imf um, it's a good opportunity to represent our communities and say, hey, we're here, let's help. Because I guess in the same sort of context, if that was, if we were running an event in our community and something similar happened, we would like to think people would, you know, provide that sort of support. So we went out, we did what we could on the day. And, um, you know, hopefully just for that sort of particular area, we made a, a little bit of impact to make things a little bit better. Oh, a great story and, and, and a great learning from it. And, and clearly, you know, you're a leader in your community. You're, you're doing some leading work in, in terms of the team that you lead. Any leadership tips, anyone who's kind of inspired you as a leader over the years that you follow? I, I always like to get some, some leadership insights to share with the viewers. Yeah, I, I won't say I'm a leader. Um, other people might, other people might not. I think... Couple of things. So my my dad, who raised me, he gave watching him. I think one of the things that I picked up from him is actually um, taking the time to talk to people. I think it's really important. Um, so instead of just you know, a lot of people have busy lives, and you bump into people, and it's sort of like, hey, keep going. And growing up in the community, I did one of the things. I always sort of took time to talk to people, particularly like parents. Um, and I think I got that a lot off my dad is just taking the time when people want to have a chat, have a chat, even if you feel like you're in a rush, it, it won't kill you just to give up a couple of minutes of your day. Um, so I think the one thing I kind of learned from that is, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily remember what you do or what you've done. They kind of remember the way you make them feel. 
So, I mean, it's all good to be a, a big time CEO, but if you're not much of a nice person, that's what people remember. So I think giving up your time. One of the things I remember, I'm not much of a, a reader, but I remember I, I read um, Nelson Mandela's Lessons in Life. Mm -hmm. And the one things he talked about as far as a leader is, he talked about, um, is it not Sherpas, people that herd um, like stock, uh, sheep and whatnot. And he said, you know, the sheep don't follow the person walking in front. Sometimes they follow by you guiding them forward. Mm. And I think that's sometimes really important to remember, even working with humans, instead of you just being at the leader and people following what you do to actually guide them to lead the way as well. So, you know, within my role as a manager, I try to, as much as possible, get my team to kind of be the leaders and to take on because then they have more onus within what we're doing as a team. Um, and instead of me just being kind of at the front going, do as I say, I, I think there's times where you need a leader to step up and talk and say, this is what we need, this is what we want. But there's also times where you need to guide people to be the leaders because that way it empowers everyone to take onus of those decisions and to, to push what the agenda might be. Yeah, that's, look, that's wonderful. I did an interview uh, last week or the week before uh, with the uh, the race director of the Lagos Marathon and, and, and his leadership tip was he, he referred to dogs and, and I didn't know this, but he said, you know, the, 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 the parent dogs will lead from the back and they'll push the puppies out further and the young dogs and they guide and, and, and cajole them. So uh, great analogy. Wonderful. Uh, and then, you know, your, your story is is pretty inspiring and I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people in your community and, 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 and you, you, you would continue to do in work. But I always like to end with an inspiring story have you got something that you'd like to share please um probably look the thing that got me into running was um i had an illness uh called guillain barre syndrome which was a um essentially my immune system attacked my nervous system and creates a i guess a paralysis through the body and um, during that time, it, it took quite a while to diagnose. So this was in 2010. So I went from, I was playing rugby union at the time. Uh, I was playing first grade. I was at a, a fairly decent level. Um, I was fairly fast. I wasn't the strongest, but uh, I was pretty decent. And essentially what happened during a sort of a week period, I went from, you know, playing first grade footy to no longer being able to walk. And during that period, so they go through all these different scenarios as far as trying to diagnose. So they look at, you know, tumours, cancers, strokes, all those sort of things. And after about a week, they diagnosed us with Guillain-Barre syndrome. And the doctors, because it is a syndrome, they don't know how it's going to affect people. And the one thing that they said is that you may not have the same strength, you um, may not have the same endurance, and you may not have the same speed. So that kind of caused... For me, I'm a bit um, oppositional defiant. If you tell me not to do something, I will look at doing it. If you tell me to do something, then I'm just not interested in doing it. So because the doctors kind of lay to see like you may not be or like there's a fair chance you won't be have the same sort of um, life that you had prior, I kind of use that as a platform to kind of prove them wrong, but also prove to myself that they were wrong. So I set a couple of goals in hospital just internally. I didn't really uh, say it out loud, but one, the first thing was to walk. The second thing was to play first grade rugby again. And the third was to do a triathlon because I saw that as the ultimate sort of test of endurance. Mm -hmm. um, so about sort of six, seven months later, I signed up for my first triathlon. 
which was in Newcastle. I came like 220th out of 260th. Like I was terrible at it. Um, but to me, that kind of started a cascade of events to get into more endurance sports. So um, obviously the following year, I got selected in the Indigenous Marathon Project. Um, and then my next goal after doing a marathon was to do, you know, the Ironman. And then once I did the Ironman, I was like, my goal is to make it to the Hawaiian Ironman. And so it kind of like, that's kind of, I guess for me created, yeah, like this new sort of pathway in life. Like I may have just stayed playing footy, hanging with my mates, drinking on the weekend, doing those sort of things. Um, but I think what it, it kind of showed me is that, you know, sometimes people can tend to write your own scripts, like say, this is, you know, this is your sort of ceiling. And sometimes you've got to say to yourself, well, that's not my ceiling. Like I, I want to go above and beyond. That kind of was what I felt like happened to me in that sort of hospital when the doctor said, you know, this is likely the outcome for you going on. And I kind of said, well, I think I can do more and I'm going to see if I can do more. And that's kind of led to, you know, going and doing the Hawaiian Ironman and, you know, trying to take on doing a hundred kilometers, a uh, hundred kilometer run, which probably at the time the doctor said, like, you're crazy if you oh, think that's yeah. ever going to happen. Wow, what an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. It's, what, a, what a fantastic way to end. Matt, it's been great talking to you. I'm sure there's many more great stories you can tell, but uh, we're, we're unfortunately out of time. But uh, yeah, really just wanted to say thanks for your time. Wish you all the best for your 100 kilometers and, and all the ongoing stuff you're doing. You're clearly uh, you know, a great leader in your community, even though you, you don't see yourself as a leader. It seems to me that you must be uh, you know, inspiring and leading lots of people. So thank you so much uh, and all the very best. Cheers, Chris. Thanks for having me.